HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin is home to the nation's only master cheesemakers program that provides innovative cheesemakers with continuing education opportunities? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, and welcome to Speaking Broadly. This is your host, Dana Cowan. And today I am thrilled to have as my guest someone whose cooking I've enjoyed for years. First, when she was working with April Bloomfield at the Breslin, then at John Dory Oyster Oyster Bar. (laughs) I didn't know that was a tongue twister until I just tried that. It's a little difficult. It's a little difficult. Okay, White Gold Butcher, which happens to be one block or two blocks from my house. And now as executive chef at Reynard, which is in the Wyeth Hotel in Brooklyn. Welcome, Christina Leckie. Thanks for having me, Dana. I am excited to have you here for so many reasons. I mean, from uni toes to bone broth <laughs> to um, wood roasted squash, which is your latest absolute stroke of genius, as far as I'm concerned. And we'll get to food later. But um, one reason I was so thrilled to have you in that chair right by my side is to hear what it's like to, you know, take the helm now that you are executive chef. Uh, So to understand that, I think we have to understand a little bit about what it was like to work for uh, April, because how many years did you work with April Bloomfield? Like close to seven, maybe like seven, like a full, yeah. Yeah, a long time. That's a lot. And yeah. you got to do three separate openings. Yeah, three separate openings, yeah. And so what was that like? Um, challenging. <laughs> a lot of work, a lot of hours, um, but good. I mean... The what good, was the challenging part? Uh, challenging because I guess when you first start working with somebody is understanding uh, their sensibilities and their visions. Um, and then once you sort of understand that, which I feel like what why April and I were so successful together is because we sort of had uh, a kindred uh, 
friendship and work relationship. I, I think she had a lot of respect for me. I had a lot of respect for her. And we what just... What was the vision? Like, how could you articulate the vision that you had in common? Um, I think uh, very high standards, um, hard work, dedication, being very consistent with our cooking. Like, she could come in and be rest assured that the kitchen would be running the way that she would that she would be running it if she had been there. Um, and I think for me, it worked really well because I sort of was looking for someone to trust me and sort of let me kind of run and do my own thing. And I think because I built that trust with her, I was able to sort of, I had a lot of creative control and um, a lot of freedom. And, you know, and I think, like I said, through mutual respect and and I really believe consistency. Uh, That can be so hard in the kitchen. Yeah, totally. Uh, You know, that notion of doing the roast chicken the exact same way every day. Like, I've never achieved consistency ever. It's probably the most challenging thing. What's what's the key? Like, how do you get consistency? Um, I think, well, hopefully dialing in a recipe and Uh sort of sticking with that recipe, but also teaching people about sensibilities. Like, is this garlic taste the way garlic should and I feel like April really instilled that in me she had such a highly uh sensitive palate for that lemon doesn't taste like lemon Mm -hmm. you know like saying things that like most people wouldn't think of you know she had she really understands the nuances and I think that's why her food shines so brightly because it's the little things that she's always paying attention to and I think I always knew that about my own cooking, but I think she really like drove that home and made that a thing. So, you know, yes, there's roasted pumpkin, but maybe these pump like from this farm, they're not as sweet as these others. So it's really making sure you're building those foundations and tasting in addition to like coming up with a precise recipe. And I think teaching a staff in a way that one will they'll get behind your vision and and always you know gently nudging them to continue to be like okay it's not quite like this you know and tasting the food on a regular basis I think is huge I love the notion of a lemon not tasting like lemon because of course ingredients um you know depending on the season depending on the weather those that darn weather totally you know uh where things come from yeah they the notion that you can just follow a recipe blindly is um just you know kind of a bad idea and in a restaurant being able to do that on the fly is so important. When you were uh, working in those great kitchens, how did you feel about being the behind-the-scenes person? And did you sort of ache to be the in-front-of-the-scenes person? Um, I, you know, I never really knew what... I knew, always knew I wanted to be a chef, and I always knew that I wanted uh, to be recognized in some way for my hard work. And I feel like... I feel like April, in her way, did allow me to blossom and and be like I said because I was often by myself obviously she's running a very large organization and you know she wasn't she would you know she'd be bouncing around to all the places but she wouldn't be there in a long time so I think for a long time I'd forgotten about like oh yeah like this is her (laughs) you know like this isn't really me but I, I think it's I think it's crazy not to sort of when you know that you're giving so much of yourself to not at some point sort of put yourself out there because it's really, I mean, it's like why we're, you know, it's like what drives you is like, besides like motivation from a boss or a peer, but like, it's yourself, you know, and I think for me, it's really exciting and sort of scary, but I love the fear, you know, like it, it drives me. And 
So I feel really good about it. And, you know, there's always like a part of me that's like, God, I guess I could have done that sooner. But like, I feel like everything happens for a reason and timing is, you know, it's, it's been a good transition. So how do you find fear as a motivator? Like, what does that, (laughs) what does that mean to you? (laughs) Well, I think it's uh, a way that kitchens used to run very successfully for a very long time. And I was definitely part of that. Uh, I always like to call it one of the last generations of these like old school, sort of very uh, domineering, demanding, uh, often feeling loveless, yet thriving on like, you know, sheer fear and hunger <laughs> to please the boss and please the the customers um, as a line cook, you know. Um, so you were in Philadelphia doing that, right? I was right. in Philadelphia and, and in time in New York as well, yeah. Right, so stri- striped striped uh, bass, bass, yeah. And, uh, and uh, guilt. Who yeah. was the chef at guilt when you were there? Uh, it was a chef called Christopher Lee. And then my friend Justin Bogle took it over, who's the CDC at Le Cuckoo. Yeah. I hadn't put that together. Yeah. Uh, right, I remember when... Uh, Christopher was there, and that you had worked with him at Stripe Bass also, yeah, right? totally. So, so um, you have managed to find a way to Im- impress these chefs <laughs> enough that they, they keep you on yeah. from, from city to city yeah. and project to project. Yeah. I, I definitely say cooking didn't come naturally to me, although it's what I sort of lean towards. It, I definitely, it took me a long time to sort of blossom. Why do you think that is? I, you know, I just... I didn't, I'm, I just wasn't an, like, it took me longer to chop things correctly, and it took me longer to um, just understand the nuances and drive, but... I, I, so why did you persevere? Like, if it took you so long, you know, people tend to gravitate towards the things that they do well, that yeah. feel easy for them, but... Uh, I think I, I had an answer for that a second ago. I think <laughs> why I, you know, I think for me it was... I mean, just sheer determination to do a good job. I think another reason, you know, and this is what I wanted to say really is, you know, I didn't show a lot of emotion in the kitchen. And I think I, I think I was doing an okay job, but I, I think I didn't show the fear that I was feeling. And I didn't, cry, I never cried. I didn't like get emotional. And I think early on, my early bosses thought that I wasn't passionate. They took that as a sign of dispassion. And I always felt like I was like, I remember burning a loaf of brioche that the pastry chef had made was so embarrassed to tell them that I went out and ran out and bought a loaf of brioche to like replay, you know, that's like the kind of integrity and like heart, like I knew that it was there. So for me, I was never deterred. I think it was, I had to figure out a way to find my own voice in the kitchen and find a way to get people to understand that I did care. And why is it that you think they thought, I'm not saying you yeah. agree, um, that crying would have been a sign of passion. Was that just the I think it was culture? the nature of the, yeah, I think it was like, you know, people crumbling under pressure and showing emotion or showing, you know, I think it was, you know, there was a little bit of that to it, you know, and, you know, obviously I didn't start that long ago, but, you know, women weren't, you know, that regular in the kitchen. There was definitely mostly always in pastry and like the old classic stuff that people say and. I don't know. I just I just sort of wanted to really assimilate and like be one of the guys and not sort of, you know, I didn't want to like crumble. And I just think maybe they didn't really know how to manage that, you know, and I think, like I said, once I excel, once I got it, yeah. I excelled pretty quickly. Yeah. So I don't know. So you were working when you were working for um, at the at the Breslin John Dory much less so, I think, at White Gold, probably. Yeah. Um, the Umbrella Restaurant Group uh, was run by 
Ken Friedman, who has um, faced sexual harassment charges. It's been really sort of devastating in a lot of different ways. Um, I wonder, you know, when you're inside that organization, which you are not now, but what did that feel like? Is that something, because you were just talking about, like, the intensity of the kitchen and people who want to make you crumble. This is a different way of... um, feeling intensity, protecting yourself from intensity. What was that like? Um, I think I turned it off for a really long time. And I think it eventually got the better of me. And it's why I'm not there any longer. And um, I think it's a shame. And I think it's, I think it's, it's a bigger problem. You know, obviously, we know it's like, we're just hitting the tip of a giant, giant, you know, iceberg. And, um, and I think, I think we all knew that it, there was some sort of something that wasn't quite right and there was some level of uncomfortability that was always sort of present. And I think you just, you know, as somebody, as a female, and I think many females will feel the same, is you're so programmed to ignore sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, I started my working career. I was a busser. I was a hostess. I've always sort of gravitated for money in restaurants and you sort of just turn it off, you know, it's like how you get catcalled on the street. You just sort of, you just brush it off. And, um, and I think, I mean, what's so amazing now is like, that doesn't have to be the norm anymore. And it, it, you can look at it as a real problem instead of just being like, Oh, well, that's just what people do, you know? Um, so it sounds like in, in some way you identify what, uh, with what April was saying at, you know, at the beginning, which was her first response, I guess is a better way to say it, which is, you know, you just, you do what you can, but you yeah. basically ignore it. Yeah. Um, do you feel like it's was a hard thing to turn off or just like you're so, one think, is so I programmed? Think, I think I was often protected because I, he was never my direct boss. But there were right. times that I was felt uncomfortable and I'd wish that I had spoken up sooner. And I feel like... You know, I feel like I'm in a really great place right now, and I feel like, you know, hopefully someday April will be able to tell her side of, you know, what's gone on in her company. And I think, you know, I think she herself is dealing with a lot of, you know, like, you know, how did how did this, you know, how has this been going on for so long? It's got to take a lot of reflection and time. And, you know, I think... All of us look back one way or another yeah. and say, um, what could I could, what could sure. I have done? I mean, certainly in my position at, at Food & Wine, you know, there's questions that arise sure. in my mind. You know, are there people that I could have given less attention to or, you know, pursued the rumors or, you know, I don't, I don't know because I don't think that pursuing rumors, yeah. uh, that's complicated. Sure. Uh, but it also does make me look forward, as you were saying, yeah. in a different way. I'm much more heightened awareness of sure. what I can do to contribute to sure. positively. Sure. And certainly now at Reynard, you you still have a boss. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you don't get to do the entire thing on your own. <laughs> so, um, and I know that you lead your kitchen uh, in a way that is a repudiation yeah. of the uncomfortableness yeah. that you describe um, at you know some of those restaurants where you worked earlier how how do you create sort of an I- 
ideal environment. And it, it isn't ideal, right? No environment is sure. actually ideal. But you're yeah, your best shot. You know, your best shot at it. I don't know. For me, it's like, as a, as a chef, I, I feel like, again, talking about, like, trends of things, like, way, behavior patterns of older times, you know, and I think a lot of young managers go through this where you're a little more hot-headed, you're a little more aggressive, because you feel like that's the way to get your point across, or, and that's also the way that you've been shown, because that's how people got their point across to you, and for me, as I mature in my career, I feel like I'm able to relax a lot more and look at the bigger picture and sort of try to just build a trust and understanding with my staff that they know that I'm there for them and that I am going to hold them accountable th- for things. And I think for me, just being a very consistent manager, um, so they know what the expectation is. So there's less need to get so angry or get so aggressive. And also just trying to have my staff, like if they're going through a personal problem or they're feeling, you know, is a is a, is a a dishwasher or another, a fellow cook, like treating them in a certain way that's not... Uh, that's not correct, like that they know that there's a, that I'm a safe environment for them to sort of, you know, give like talk to and sort of like sound off about problems that they might be having inside and outside of work. I mean, they are giving a lot of their time to their career and to and to me, quite frankly, and I owe it to them to sort of offer, a, you know, in addition to a, a, a job and, a, and hopefully a future in this in this industry, but as, you know, as a personal counsel in some kind of way and like some personal advice, I think what I love about the new generation is that they are much more sensitive and they're more open to talking about their sensitivities than I was raised. And, and I, and I admire that. I think there's a, there's a courageousness to that. And, and and there there's a real sincerity to it, and I just I like try to nurture my staff as much as possible, and just give them a broader a broader experience than I'd been given. It's interesting because you bring up the notion of um, you know bringing your personal life into the restaurant, in part because your team probably works you know yeah. a lot of the, a lot yeah. of their time, and. In the old days, and in many uh, work environments, so it's not just restaurants, yeah. you're supposed to really leave your personal life uh, outside. Do you feel like it's specific to restaurants that you do want to talk to the whole person because of the mental health issues or the um, just the physical grueling problems think, or yeah. how it affects your um, your ability to have relationships? Yeah. Do you think that's influenced you? And I think so. I mean, I definitely, for me, try to tamper down the hours. Like, I mean, obviously, labor is so much more expensive than it was. But I mean, also, obviously, it is. it can be quite grueling and it can be quite exhausting. And I do think you're not getting the best out of your employee, you know, forcing them to work X amount of hours. And, and for good or bad, you almost can't afford to have people work those kind of hours anymore. Um, so I think with them working less, and I, I do think there's, I mean, there's a lot of mental health issues that, you know, you could never really talk about that people really are experiencing. I mean, if you're working late nights, you know, you're working, you know, you might, you know, it's a very loose and fast, it still has that sort of party vibe. And, you know, people can get mixed up in a lot of things, you know, and I do think that you have to be aware, like, if you know, a cook is coming in, and they, they seem kind of off, I mean, that's going to affect the food, right? That's going to affect a customer's experience. Like, I have to get to the bottom of that before, or after service, if I've noticed something, because inevitably, it's going to hurt 
what's what's coming out of the kitchen if everybody's not like giving it a hundred percent like you literally need them to be on like sharp-minded and focused or you're not going to get have the best service and you're it's going to sort of drag everybody down and it's certainly going to drag the quality of food down so I, I feel like those things are so um they go such hand in hand that it's it is interesting that up until this um i mean up and through this time there have been people cooking the food who are you know stoned angry sure exhausted yeah and yet we've had some really amazing food. Sure, I know. It's like, <laughs> and why can't we still have that? I mean, I guess you could. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I always like to joke and say I don't drink and drive the ship. Like, I just, I've never been a fan of that. I feel like I saw that very, very early on in my career of, like, chefs, like, partying on the line. And I was just like, that's not why I got into this. I got into it for, like, the creativity and, like, the, you know, like, the more higher end aspect of it. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I am glad it's not like that because I don't think I would have survived. I'm glad to have like definitely been in real professional kitchens and I try to like, you know, keep that and moving forward. So uh, another hot button of the moment is the tipping, no tipping. Mm. And Reynard is a no tipping restaurant. Um, how does, how's that working out for the, the team and... I mean, for the for I mean, me, well, it's back of the house doesn't yeah, really affect it. But well, for it does the- in the sense that like we can we can pay staff a little more. You know, it, it makes a more even playing field between the front and the back of the house. It's no longer like they're you know walking out with a big wad of cash and the kitchen's making minimum wage. And it definitely broadens the the labor pool and like allows us to hire at a higher hourly than like I feel like a restaurant that's not. I mean. But it definitely costs the, you know, it's a it's a business sacrifice for sure, and you can see why it's not working out for everybody. And you and know, the, the sacrifice is because if you're if the business is not, oh, you know, make it then you're t- you're personally paying for the higher wages. But if the business is obviously making thriving and making all the money that it, you know, you sort of set out for it to make with the gratuity free, then you know it pays for itself. But it, it you know, it's a tricky balance. It definitely puts. You know, it definitely takes some dedication and some like real, I mean, I don't, I'm still learning. It's obviously a very new system to me and, you know, but Andrew is very much, uh, Andrew Tarlow is very much, you know, he's, he's for it and he's, and I can see why in a lot of ways, but it's definitely like a business sacrifice. Like it's not an easy. What do you think the uh, future is? Do you think that, uh, because it's been such a mixed bag. I know. I think the future has to be something. I don't know if that's. Um, I don't know if that's the end all be all, but I definitely think with the way that the labor, you know, like by 2018, it'll be 16, 15 in New York. And obviously it's already been that way in California. I mean, I know that my friends who have restaurants in San Francisco and they, the servers make such a high hourly and the tipping on top. I mean, the labor is outrageous and restaurants just simply aren't making any money, you know, because you're paying so much staff. I, so I, and then the kitchen in front of the house and balance gets greater and greater. Like servers are making one hundred and fifty thousand, nearly one hundred thousand dollars a year, and the kitchen staff still making forty thousand or forty five. You know, that's it's such a huge imbalance. And and I've had chefs in San Francisco tell me that they've lost kitchen staff to go to the front of the house because they see where the money is going, and you know, and that's a shame. And yeah, you know, I sadly I'm not very like financially savvy enough to have smart answers for that those kind of questions but I mean as we know 
running a business is getting just so much more increasingly expensive between cost of products and cost of labor and, you know, cost of rents. It's, you know, it's... It'll be interesting to see where it all <laughs> yeah. lands, whether it'll be, you know, all fine dining and then... This, the fast casual the, the or, the, fast casual. or like, yeah, the places that are in the, like, the halls and the food courts and the... Right. I hope it doesn't go that way. I sort of really... Those are my least favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Something that's replicated where you don't have the soul of the yeah, chef the, in your food. I don't like those. Places. Yeah, <laughs> those are not for me, but... And I, I'd hate to see this industry go in that kind of way. I get sort of like the community and like the co- the cheaper spaces, but and it's sort of like a satellite to a bigger thing. But I do think it does. You really don't feel the passion or the spirit of a place in a in a little stall somewhere. And do you feel that it just uh, it changes your experience of what you're eating? Yeah. Yeah, I just, I, you know, I went to a couple even in Copenhagen where people were like, oh, yeah, like, the, and I'm just like, it's not good there either. Like, <laughs> it's not like they figure, I mean, maybe they think, I don't, they don't think they figured something out with it either. I don't, I don't particularly care for it. And with that thought, we're going to take a quick commercial break and we will be right back with executive chef Christina Lecky. Thanks, man. Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin Cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds. Or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally anyway, anytime, anyplace. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese, the farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious, stinky Limburger and its long storied history. I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Ross Grand Cru Sirchois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satori's Black Pepper Bella Vitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese with lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk. Fourth-generation cheesemakers combine old-world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. This is your host, Dana Cowan, and today I have with me Christine Leckie, who is the executive chef at Reynard in Brooklyn in the Wyeth Hotel. If you haven't been, you have to go. I um, <laughs> I went on, I think, truly the coldest night yeah. of the year. We've had a few, but and yeah, that was a particularly cold night. <laughs> and I was wrapped and bundled and... Um, that was fine. <laughs> I, got, I got through the door. But what was so great was that once I got through the door and was ready to eat, the uh, I walked into the kitchen because there's Christina at, at the pass. And um, or maybe you might have been not exactly at the pass. <laughs> but there's a wood hearth and these amazing roasted uh, cauliflowers and roast chicken and roast, roast squash. It's a roast fast yeah, it's uh, a lot of- and 
I, I'm excited to talk about uh, your food and the inspiration behind your food. I know that you, you went um, to have Francis Malman's food in Argentina. Yeah. And was that uh, part of preparing you for your next gig, preparing you for this? Because uh, yeah. I think you were... You were uh, where were you then? Were you I was working... Where was I then? I think we, we were in gold. transition to opening White Gold. Yeah. But then, you know, I was I was slated to help, uh, and I did work on a little bit the Hearth and the Hound. So uh, we we uh, Hearth and the Hound, which is in in, in Los Angeles, Los yeah. Angeles. Um, so we were we were doing we went on a little research trip. April is really so April Bloomfield. Yeah, yeah. She like called up Francis and was like, "Hey, do you mind if like we come and check you out?" And he's like, "Yes, I'm going to be on vacation by myself in Patagonia. Would you like to come?" And it was sort of like I, I give April so much credit for like sort of arranging that trip, like because it was definitely a trip of a lifetime. We were there for two weeks and we didn't have uh, cell phone service or uh, you know what was that we like? We were really ice. It was amazing. I mean, I think it was harder. Maybe April. I don't want to speak for her too much, but I think it was a struggle at first. But I think you know we definitely sort of you know it's definitely nice to turn off like if anybody has not ever just really shut it off for even a week I think it's really important for your to like get back into your own brain fully you know Um, but it was amazing I mean we got to see a lot of cooking techniques got to experience just such a pure um, environment like the so describe it to me because um, I've never been uh, yeah I mean it's it's crystal clear kind of grayish water grayish in the sense that like just the color of it is just not very bright but so clear you can see the reflections of the mountains shine directly on there uh you dig the soil and it's immediately this beautiful rich clay like almost at a spa you would like slather this clay all over yourself it's you know it's just so wonderful like there's beautiful uh rainbow and brook trout in the in the waters and you know, we got to go towards the end of their winter. So there was like still snow on the ground, but it was our summer, which was a great sort of in August to go and, and be like bundle up and and go uh, ski cross country skiing and, and fly fishing and, uh, you know, get to build all these fires, wake up in the morning. And, you know, and it was great. So we stayed Tell me about a- building fires with uh, Francis Malman, because, of course, he <laughs> wrote that extraordinary book on the seven fires. And what was what did you learn from doing that uh i i learned that it takes a lot of patience but it also just takes knowing what to look for and what uh, what do you look for uh different types of like how to like shave wood off a tree to get the right kind of shavings to light uh, you know to build a small fire and make it bigger you know just and why does that matter i think it well it matters because you need you know you got to start with a lot of like almost kindling or like little so you, you know it's like going in the forest and foraging for the right amount of dry wood and then you know building like you know francis is obviously the most romantic and you know he talks about it like you're building an altar and you know you got to have a nice foundation and then you start building it up and up and you know i mean i'm sure i in the wild will need a lot more practice but it was <laughs> it was great to sit there and just sort of absorb his uh his intensity towards what he does and his passion for it. I mean, he's really just, he's an over the top passionate, you know, dedicated to his craft and obviously extremely romantic in the way that he talks about things, which makes it, you know. And what is it for those who don't know about uh, Malman's romanticism? How do you describe that? Uh, It's, you know, it's flat, it's flowery, flourishing words and, uh, you know, he's just, he's very well read. He's very, you know, w- you know, well-spoken and, 
Um, you know, he and again, he just exudes passion and and energy. He's he's got such a vibrant youthfulness that you know is sort of. So, did you take any of those techniques back to? Certainly, yeah. I mean. I'm, you know, it's a little different working in, in an indoor because he's definitely. I think the magic of Francis is being on location with Francis, and when Francis does his his like pop ups uh, in the wild, I think those are like or out in the world, um, like when he goes to Napa and stuff like that, and like does things in the woods. It's those are the real. I think that's where you see the like amazing uh, uniqueness of his cuisine, but. Um, yeah, definitely, you know, understanding that like you can cook something for many hours over wood and it not pick up a lot of smoke and understanding how difficult it is to sort of really, and the nuances can be really small, you know, and, and just, I thought that was interesting because I I know that you've said in the cooking that you do at Reynard, you're, you're controlling for the smoke. I mean, you're not really trying to blast. Yeah. It's not like a barbie. It's not meant to be like a smokehouse, you know? But I, I, I am trying to work on building the smoky flavors a little more because it is it is quite a challenge. Like certainly you can put a char on stuff and certainly you can, you know, you can cook things. But it's like how do you work, make sure you're capturing all of the essence of the wood? Like the wood not just providing a heating source, like, excuse me, utilizing it for you know, for all of its purposes. So we try to do a lot of hanging so while things are cooking, we're also smoking some other things. So there's a balance between the two. And if maybe one thing's been grilled, the other thing on the plate has been smoked. So you get like a nice, subtle balance. And uh, one of my favorite dishes of yours is that roasted squash, which I think partly is the squash itself. Because sure. I'm so accustomed, you know, we've tripped into a world of delicata squash rings, um, yeah. but that's really not your squash. Yeah. <laughs> Can you... Tell the listeners a little bit about your extraordinary squash. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kombucha. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. You know, squash is one of those things that, like, I sort of ignored for a couple. You know, chef. I feel like all chefs must do this, where they forget about a vegetable for a while because they either the in, the world itself is oversaturated them, or they themselves are oversaturated by cooking. And I definitely hadn't cooked with pumpkin or squash in a really long time. And, uh, yeah, for some reason it just felt, I think maybe this year we just got such a good batch of red curry squashes and kabocha squashes. And um, I sort of like them because the, the texture of the meat is so dry and so rich. They're not sort of, like, delicate and watery. I mean, like, and but they do have a sweetness in their concentration. And I think you can really concentrate them overnight with the, te- like, I have a, a wood grill or wood hearth as well and a wood and a wood stove. So I'm able to use the, the end of the night embers to cook them for the next day. And, and I think that does really sort of dry them up even a little more and really intensify their sweetness. I mean, you can tell they're just such a dark orange, rich, kind of a flaky almost. They almost have like a flaky, like a puff pastry layered think, to them. I think what's so interesting too is they, they seem very um, primordial. Yeah. You know, they're not a sort of delicate with a delicate uh, skin. and they're, yeah, yeah, they have they kind just, of a rough skin. Yeah, and we sort of like to just tear them open and just keep them all like jagged. And I really love that jagged yeah, quality. Like where the edges get a little burnt and crispy, yeah. Was that, did that feel daring to do? Because I feel like it's super unchefy and yet is part of what I responded to the most like I hadn't seen it before I was really excited to try it and then of course it tastes delicious yeah. but but the visual of being craggy and dry and dark orange was yeah. amazing yeah thanks I do kind of like things just kind of torn open and like like 
put on a plate, I guess, in a way that doesn't look like just thrown on, but not overly fussed with. And I think I learned a lot of that. April likes to do that a bit as well. Right. One of the things about April's food, when you read her recipes, you realize how precise she is. Yeah. Because what ends up on your plate doesn't always have that visual precision. Sure. But it has flavor precision, sure. precision which... Uh, I really admire. You were talking about vegetables that were forgotten, and then, of course, some vegetables are so ridiculously of the moment. I wonder how a chef even conceives to, you know, I- embrace them. And in your menu, the cauliflower yeah. uh, is the one. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, boy, cauliflower yeah. <laughs> again. But it was great. Can you talk about your cauliflower and how you <laughs> embraced cauliflower even at a cauliflower <laughs> moment in history? Yeah, cauliflower's been a moment for a long time. I mean, luckily, it's not deep fried and it's not battered. So, you know, I think we're... <laughs> You're safe there. <laughs> we're, we're trendsetting, just kidding, <laughs> in that regard. No, but, we, you know, we, we steam ours a little bit just to get them started and then uh, toss them in a garlic confit and then just throw them as close to the embers as possible in the wood oven and, and let them sort of naturally char. And then I think because it's served with, uh, you know, a dish that like... Or, or an ingredient that I, I don't often see on menus, which is a uh, soca uh, or farinata, which is a chickpea crepe, which I, I think for me, I, I love because I love that area of France and I love the idea of how European it is. But I also love that it's gluten free and it like saves me a lot of trouble as a chef on a menu to be like, <laughs> not only do I have this delicious thing, but it's also gluten free. Right. Like, and it, you just and, and, and it's vegetarian and it's like, yeah, it's yeah. like, it's, it's, it's a crowd pleaser for people who have dietary issues, I think. Um, and it's delicious. You know, you get to fry it in a lot of really, really delicious good olive oil. And yeah, I think because I have that, uh, the ovens that I have and yeah, it's, it's a fun, it's a fun thing to have. And I think it'd be one of those things that, Maybe cauliflower will be moving very soon off that, thank God. And, you know, maybe I can just serve that as, like, a bread side or, like, a you mm. know, because it just would be always nice to sort of have that, like, crispy, oily, you know, chickpea. For the soca. Yeah. yeah. And so if cauliflower moves off the menu, uh, just as a general proposition, yeah. not, not yours, what vegetable do you think is poised to take its place? <laughs> yeah, let's say tr- food forecasting 2018. I always love food. Of course, you can imagine. I love food forecasting. I know, I know. God, I should have been thinking about this. I mean, I do think, I think cabbage is going to continue to have a rise. I do think there's a lot more cabbage, and I think farmers are growing a lot more varietals, like Caraflex cabbage is like something that has won my heart and would be a new vegetable that I would use uh, religiously moving forward for a while until I get oversaturated with it. But um, I don't even know what that is. Caraflex cabbage is like a cone-shaped cabbage. Oh. Um, and I first saw it in California in in the farmer's markets in San Francisco and Los Angeles. And then miraculously this winter for the first time in, in abundance, maybe it was around like, you know, the farmers, you know, what's great about going to the markets all the time or having relationships with farmers, you can see they experiment with a lot of stuff. Like, they'll be like, oh, we just planted this little crop of, you know, and just to see if the chefs go for it. And sometimes the chefs go for it and and the and the consumers go for it. And sometimes they don't, so they don't grow as much of it. But um, I think that... What else fits in that category? I'm curious. Uh, like, let me think... I think ahi dulce is a pepper that was like that can that's something that I feel like is relatively newish like within the past like three years like was it it's like a habanero with um it's got all the habanero like fruitiness Mm -hmm. but none of the heat Mm -hmm. um and that was something that like I think it was kind of around a little and then like once the chef sort of caught on to it like 
really began to boom, like buying pounds and pounds and pounds of it. And I actually, I, I like to use it on a, it's a good little like additive. Like it's like, Oh, what's that? Because it's not something that I think as a, like as a diner that Mm -hmm. you, you don't see those in the grocery store as much, but I I think you're slowly starting. People call them seasoning peppers as well. So I think you're slowly starting to see them. Um, but yeah, what's going to be big for this year? Cluey, I don't know. I couldn't answer that question. On well, you just answered you, you yeah. answered it with two that I think are. Really I think those will continue to like sort of. Yeah, they're great. Uh, you've said that a couple of places that I think you staged. I'm not sure you worked, but River Cafe. Mm-hmm. Um, these restaurants have a feminine touch. Yeah, I'm wondering what you mean by that because. You know, the idea that food is either feminine or masculine is intriguing to me. I think it's the way that the food is... Yeah, it is kind of the way the food is touched. And it's using, like, sometimes softer ingredients or not, like, beating somebody over the head with spice or with... um, And maybe I'm a woman, so I'm biased now that I think about how pointed this is. But, you know, it's like oregano over marjoram. I would say marjoram's a more feminine herb than oregano you know I think it's soft it's like sweeter and softer and and I guess I feel like I'm like almost poorly stereotyping women in a way (laughs) but um I don't know it's just it's about subtleties and like a delicateness and I think you see that with a lot of really incredible like Suzanne Gaunt like there's just there's just a way yeah yeah there's just like there's a way that women touch food that is inherently different than a lot of men, not all men, but a lot of men. I'm actually surprised sometimes to see that the plating of men in the uh, fancy restaurants sure. can be exceptionally refined. Yeah. And women tend actually to not gravitate sure. to that arena of fine dining. Sure. I think I don't want to I know, generalize. I know. Yeah, just, it's horrible. Yeah. We're tripping into it. But I'd... Yeah. I'd, um, I'd read that you'd said that and it, it interests me I think women tend to have a more honest relationship with the food which means a little bit less There's a, yeah fussery yeah. from you know but not always uh, yeah I just think uh, even as like a line cook I just think that there's a little more just I think it's a little more like a softer touch like even watching men to women like dress salads it's like you know you really have to teach I mean they're you know just how to like touch things and hold things and be gentle with things and I don't know, does it come naturally to women more than men? Or have I just been trained by really great women? And um, I also worked with really great men. You know, I don't know. Um, But I do think there is a difference. And I do think there are ingredients and there's just a softer balance sometimes. I I do think women are slightly savvier in that way about, like, getting a lot of flavor out of something without, like, overtly... Bonking you on the head. I think yeah. that was the yeah. <laughs> that was where we were yeah. going with that um, with that comment. So, um, I, I'm wondering. You've worked for, as you just said, lots of um, lots of women with lots of women. Are there is there a woman who has stood out to you as an extraordinary mentor? Someone who um, beyond April, because I think that yeah, she's um, she's clearly been a tremendous totally. inspiration and support but in an unusual space because one thing that I love to do on speaking broadly is to just say the names and honor the um, the work of women just because the more stories we tell and sure. the more names we share sure. the more power we have and uh, so I'm wondering if 
yeah, I comes th- to mind. I think on a on a more high high level scale, it would be uh, Nancy Silverton has always been um, somebody who's just you know she's just and when you're in a room with her, she can just she's just so welcoming and so friendly. Even if you're like the the dishwasher, like I just watched the way that she behaves with all of her staff and even me having just come into her spaces and doing events. She's always just sort of like without really knowing me, always felt like she had taken me under her wing. And I just think that's her being in the position that she's in and having the knowledge that she has as a, as a powerful female chef is just, just so open with knowledge and, and uh, and guidance really effortlessly, which I think is really remarkable and something to aspire to. And then for me, it's just, I think it's all the women that I've worked with over the years that, you know, the unsung heroes and just watching how, like, how hard it, and how hard they work in the dedication. Uh, you know, the woman who's the chef at the John Dory, Charlene Santiago, is she's a single mom and she, you know, she is so caring about the food that she does at that at that space and you know, she works so hard and so tirelessly for making sure that that place runs smoothly and, and picks up so many extra hours. And, you know, her dedication and her work ethic is something that I truly admire. And then uh, I'll butcher her name, but her name is Berju, and she's got a restaurant called the Little French Diner in the Lower East Side. And she's she's another one. She's a woman from Turkey. And we used she was a sous chef of mine at the John Dory, and she said she works like a like a complete silent ninja in this kitchen. If anybody ever gets there, uh, it's a kind of an amazing feat to watch her work. It's the cleanest, tiniest little kitchen you've ever seen, and she's putting out just beautiful, wholesome French classics in a way that's um, that makes me, that makes me want to go. Yeah. So tell me the name again. Her name is Berju, and I, I'm gonna and uh, I will never pronounce that's her. Okay, but name. the restaurant name is called Le French Diner. Le French Diner. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> yeah, it's in the Lower East Side, and uh, she's another like just a wonderful, such such a hardworking, soft spoken person. Okay. One um, one last round, which is you know, you've worked incredibly hard. You've overcome some things that are really challenging. Like I loved reading. I'm sorry to say I love reading <laughs> that um, that you had dropped out of culinary school, yeah. right? So, but you found your determination. And for the listeners, like, what do you think um, is the guiding light? Like, what is the best advice that anyone has ever given you? Uh, wow, I feel like I think the is not to give up and to just, I, I, you know, it's old like pull up your bootstraps and sort of just like get it, get the job done. But I, I do think, um, I honestly think a lot of it just comes from within and, and I think just being and surrounding myself with really good, smart people who maybe they were always a little bit better than me and me just always sort of like, if I'd surround myself with the right people, um, I too someday would be the right person. Um, okay. (laughs) I really love that thought. I'm going to end right there. So, uh, Christina, thank you for joining me. If people want to uh, find you on social, how do they do that? Uh, oh, yeah. I don't have Facebook, but uh, <laughs> I have Instagram, Christina Lecky. Uh, yeah, Instagram. I don't know. But yeah, I'm almost going to give you my personal email. But <laughs> uh, No, but you can also just see her in person. How many nights a week are you at the restaurant? Like, five to six right now but mostly five it's been really good that's good that's good that's you holding back yeah so um (laughs) check out the i mean we described a few of those dishes her food is both nuanced and really um just happy happy delicious food and um 
you know where to find me, Dana Cowan. You can find me at FW Scout on uh, Twitter and on Instagram. And I want to thank uh, my amazing engineer, David Tatashor, and Carlin Thompson, who helps me be me across all channels. And I just saw my daughter's face pop in the window. Silly nice. Palmer, really glad you came to visit today. Okay, uh, guys, that's it for... Can I just say one thing? Oh, Dana? I just wanted to say thank you for always supporting and, and being around and being just a happy support for women in general because you yourself, you know, you're, you're in the, you've been doing it for women for a really long time. So thank you. Oh, thank you for that. Okay, <laughs> I like ending on that even better. So join us again uh, next week and look forward to having you back on Speaking Broadly. That being you listeners, not Christina, who <laughs> like this is her her one shot for the year. Okay, guys, thanks. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Ever wonder what kind of podcast Julia Child would have made? Probably would have been one where she introduced you to all of her latest discoveries and favorite people. And that's exactly the tradition we're following on Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Join me, Todd Shulkin, your host, and the Foundation's Executive Director, as I bring you inside the Foundation's world to meet the bright lights of today's food universe, just as Julia used to do from her own famous kitchen. New episodes air on Heritage Radio Network, Wednesdays at noon Eastern. Listen in.